Welcome to Social Effects, a podcast hosted by myself, Edward Barnier, or as some of you know me, Edward KB. Social Effects dives deep into the world of social media with some of my favorite people who I'm fortunate enough to call friends. The effect of social media has had an undeniable impact on our lives, and these conversations allow us to find out more about the background of some social media's most prolific creatives, their approach to the craft, and what keeps them up at night. In this upcoming episode, we speak with Varun, a Hong Kong-based photographer I met over five years ago. What I've always appreciated about Varun is his eye for design. We'll catch up later on the principles of design, user interface, and how that affects the world around us. Hey everyone, I'm here today with my friend Varun Tota, and we have a special guest today, Eugene Can. Say hi. Hey, what's up? It's Eugene from Macon. I don't know if you've heard this voice before. It's good to have you on board. And um, today we're going to cover a number of topics, but we're going to start with Varun. And do you, I don't know if you want to say a few words about yourself. Sure. Hi, I'm Varun. I am a product designer living in Hong Kong for about four years now. I moved here from Macau, where I grew up. So I lived there for about, in total, I would say about 14 years. But originally I was born in India, uh, left when I was super young. So, it, you know, it was a very long time ago. And then uh, lived in the States for about six years in Oregon. And now I'm back here. Nice. Cool, cool, cool. I didn't know you were from Macau, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to hear more about that Macau upbringing, like how maybe it was different from Hong Kong, like quite quieter. I've been there like quite a few times, but I've never really got a sense of how it would be to be brought up there. What's the vibe? So growing up in Macau. It is very different from Hong Kong. A couple of weekends ago, I, f- I felt like I wanted to go back to Macau just to relax. You don't get that time of, you don't get that type of space in, in Hong Kong. You yeah. don't have a sense of like, it's calm. It's, cal- you know, it's cool. And um, for those people that are unfamiliar with Macau, maybe you can even break it down into what do you think people know Macau as and what do you know Macau as? Right. Yeah. So I moved to Macau in 95, right? So this was before they gave it back to the Portuguese. Portuguese gave it back in 99. Back then, I mean, it was still a, gambling kind of city. It was all about the Lisboa, the whole family. And um, they had a lot of triad wars as well. So I remember things getting blown up on the streets and fires and then wow. arson and everything. And then they gave it back to China sorry, in 99. And uh, things kind of settled down and it became a very, very rich city. So everybody was able to make money super quick. So people know Macau now as this gambling mecca, right? So ga- Vegas of the East. You've got casinos on one side, and then uh, kind of dispersed within the old parts of the city, you have these fancy, gaudy-looking hotels and mm-hmm. casinos within it. I remember Macau being the pedicab type, um, you know, on the streets in San Malo. People, you know, you can use one of those pedicabs to go around Macau. Yeah. I remember being there being only one bridge back in the day, and just a really slow pace life. Right. And when I grew up, so I, I went to high, I went to grade school there and then high school. Even even that kind of changed over time for me because when I went to high school, it was on the fourth floor of an apartment building. Wow. A couple of years later, with all the influx of money, international students coming in, our school got upgraded to an actual building with playground and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of weird seeing that happen as well. And, and then kind of, you know, uh, growing up there, leaving Macau, never knowing what exactly you know, was out there because I'd never traveled before. I moved straight to the U.S. and then coming back, I realized how Macau still has its charm, but with the gaming there, it just, it's, it's a different type. It's, it feels more seedy. It feels more super money driven. There's not a lot yeah. of stuff for creative people. So one of the reasons I left Macau was 
in terms of creativity, there wasn't much to do there. And I don't want to work for a casino. I don't gamble. It seems like yeah. I, there are people that, even a close friend, there are opportunities there in terms of the, the whole gaming industry, but it's like, it's kind of selling your soul to the devil in a way. Like you, you, exactly. yeah, you could design for them, but what is the end goal? The end goal is to attract people to come in, spend money at your casino. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Albeit you could also consider it to, to play the flip side. It's entertainment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They've tried to give it that family vibe. Right. But it is still essentially gaming. It's still gaming. Right. And there are resorts for families and stuff, but at the end of the day, it's, all about making money from the casinos. Yeah. And that yeah. they used to make what 10 times more than Vegas. It was just a weird way for me to kind of grow up because I was in between all these different places and people, st- it, it, you can still go there and find the old, pl- uh, old parts of Macau. Yeah. But they've become big tourist spots. Do you think life is better for someone that lives in Macau now than it was when you grew up there in 95 to 99? In terms of making money, I think the opportunity is there, right? You have the gaming, you have the casino. So a lot of, friends that I have there, they, some of them didn't really finish high school and went straight into gaming, the gaming industry. And some of them started their own businesses that cater to the casinos or cater to, you know, uh, building out restaurants or, right. uh, but all again within casinos. So their main clients are the big casinos. So I, th- I think it's easier for them. Uh, the way I used to remember, so the way I compared it was before the big gaming thing, the cars that you saw on the street were Mazdas and Toyotas and stuff. Right. A couple of years later, you saw a couple of Beamers. Audis and stuff. Now it's Ferraris and Lambos, and right, you know right, that's right, the regular right. on the street. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I remember that. So um, the first time we met um, was me coming to Macau, and you were doing like you were hosting a photo walk in Macau, and it was my first time. I think I'd been in Hong Kong for like one month. 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we actually went to a neighborhood that was. Super fancy, and I had no frame of reference for Macau, ba- barely even gambling. But I just remember there was a succession of like Maseratis, Lamborghinis, Ferraris just passing us, and I thought it was like a like a car club, and it was just normal life, right? Yes. So, and that must have happened in your absence while you were away. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. That's the norm now. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's just so much money there, like accessible money through gaming. It's, yeah, it's, it's so different from Hong Kong where people, so I'm not saying people work really hard here. I mean, it's equal, I think, but you have to work for it in Hong Kong. Right. You know, um, whereas Macau just seems like you can go work in the casino and it will just come to you. It'll just come to you. Right. So during that time, or maybe whether, whether it was Macau or the US or even before that, when did this um, creative streak come through that made you want to design? So I went to Portland State University and I studied business information systems, oh, so business I IT. I didn't know that. Kind of in my last year, I joined the startup, uh, which was, it was called Mugasha, Music Gathering Sharing. Mm-hmm. And it was about helping DJs put their music online. So this was before the days of iTunes podcasts right. and Spotify and those type of things. Yeah. And we used to break down our two hour, three hour tracks mm-hmm. into individual songs and I used to do it by kind of copy pasting the the time the timestamps yeah. in notepad and then uploading it for every single DJ and we had like at least like 10 DJs at Whoa. that time so it was a three person startup and the person uh, that I that I joined with one of my really good friends from college he was big into design and and uh, development it was like a startup kind of vibe yeah and um, I think that was around when the first iPhone came out 2009 yeah and um Bought the first iPhone, or the, I think the second generation iPhone actually, and uh, fell in love with design. Like I realized things are going to change. The iPhone kind of blew my mind. The possibilities were endless for me that I saw. I wanted to get more into design and more into 
at that time, I don't know what UX and UI was. So it was all about, oh, this is, this feels amazing. This works really nice. Yeah. How does this work? How can I do this? And, uh, it just kind of went from there. So I graduated, joined a design firm where I was doing IT, but also getting into the UX kind of mindset. So I was being asked to beta test their software. Right. And I started talking to designers and the design team saying, what did you ask me that kind of question? Like, what did you learn from that? And how does this help you build this product? Yeah. We could just go back a second because mm-hmm. I quite often call you a UI designer when you're a UX designer. If you want to just talk a little about the difference between UI and UX. Okay. So UI, UX, they actually go together. They have to go together. UX is getting a person from A to B within your product. Yeah, basically from step A to step B, right? Mm-hmm. How you take them there in the least frictionless a friction point of view, basically. Yeah. So it's almost like an architect, right? You, if there's a fire, there's a certain type of uh, path that they follow to exit. Yeah. We're thinking about it the same way. How do I get this person from downloading my app or uh, entering my website to their final step where they want to get a job done? Right. A UI designer will take that and add everything that makes it makes it look a certain type of way. So you're looking at colors, you're looking at um, the way it interacts with the screen, you're looking at placement and pixels and spacing and um, you know grid pattern and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So we actually have to go, we go hand in hand. So for example, in my company, I'm the UX designer and I have a, a, there's a UI team there as well. So I work very closely with them to make the interface. Right, right. So in essence, although you're going hand in hand, I guess what you do goes first and then they overlay on top of that. Yes. Okay. If you so UX designer has to think about the user needs, the business needs and combine them both together to give that optimal flow. Cool, cool. Moving on from that, you went from that company in Macau, the startup company and in the US, so in, the US. in the US. Oh, right. Okay. Joining so. the design firm, losing my job there, right? Uh, because I was still a uh, international student moving back to Macau yeah. and and realizing that I wanted to get into web design. Like full time. Yes. And I got into freelance web design. So I did my own, I had my own freelance. I had a couple of clients. I joined another little small design agency, uh, three people in Macau to get in more clients. And, um, at that time, kind of things just went south at home. So I had to join one of the casinos. So I sold my soul for like a year and a half. <laughs> and uh, that was, it was good because it made me, you know, enough money to travel a lot. But also I, um, what that was the first time I was able to build product for on a bigger scale. Mm. So my one of the projects there was building a like a limo system for the casino, but it was an internal limo system. So I had to build it from the ground up because right. they were doing everything through paper. And so I had to yeah. talk to users and get their what was the challenge they had and how what is this process that I need to make into a digital version? How do I make that happen for them? Right. What what value do you think there is? Knowing that you didn't have sort of a foundational background towards this, and you had to learn everything yourself, mm-hmm. versus like if you went to school for it, you know, like do you feel you had a kind of like a fresh take on it that was actually beneficial. There are two ways you can look at this, right? Uh, people who go to school and learn these kind of thing have this good background, but I mean, it's a really good way to learn, of course. But it's when you apply it to the real world, it's very different. Like you can apply it, but the the, the uh, what I've been seeing is these people who are. Some of the designers that I've been interviewing lately, they are from school, but they're so rigid that they find it really hard to be flexible. They have to follow the framework. They have to follow this type of pattern or you know flow. Mm. Uh, whereas being self-taught and putting everything in the real world and getting the experience, you're able to kind of be flexible and move with all the different changes and requirements. That was me. I was able to just quickly understand the context, change, and if there was something I didn't know, 
Google was my best friend. And I just yeah. kind of just went Google and YouTube. Yeah. And YouTube. Yeah. Yes. Tutorials. Yes. Yeah. So, sorry, you said there's two ways to look at it. So it was like either you could, you can, you can go actually to school, say the school way is and, one way. Yes. And then, or the other way is, you know, get the real world experience because sometimes it just doesn't gel. Um, right. Some of the best designers that I've seen in the past few years or read about, they never went to school. It was all self taught. So, yeah. So after that, the limo from there, you came to Hong Kong? Yes. So that money that I made in the casinos, um, <laughs> that helped. So, yeah. So living in Macau, I needed some sort of creative um, escape. And um, that's when I read about Tyson right. on uh, Instagram. Right. And decided to join one of the, one of the meetups in Hong Kong. Yeah. Tyson is a guy that worked at CNN at the time that we met him and was very big. Again, to your point about realizing the possibilities, he was one of the first people that realized the global possibilities of sharing photos of where you're from, especially with people that have never been to that place. And he led photo walks very, from very early on and shared the photos on Instagram, which attracted both Varun and I to do the same thing and go on one of his photo walks mm -hmm. and host your own, which is what you did, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was after I met him on the first, that one of the first photo walks I went with him. Yeah. Started drinking beer and he's like, hey, you're from Macau, why don't you host the next one? <laughs> um, and then we just kind of became friends from there. And that's when I met Ed and everyone else in the Instagram community. That got me to to Hong Kong. Yeah. So I kept taking trips here and I met a lot of people here. I met my girlfriend here. And that kind of got me here almost every other weekend for um, uh, about a year. And um, I realized I wanted to get more into design, do it more full time. And there was a, there's a local UX conference that happens once a year, UXHK, that I read about and decided, okay, well, it's three, $4,000 this is going to be a good investment for me long term. I'm just going to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a three-day conference and I came over for one of the long weekends and just decided to go to it. Met my, at that time was my ex-boss um, or my ex-design boss. He was there promoting JobCB, which is the company that I work for. And uh, I went for the interview after I met him and just kind of went from there. What is your current role at JobCB? I'm a product designer. So UX designer, product designer, almost the same thing. Yeah. I uh, lead the design for the mobile apps yeah. uh, across the organization. And, and JobsDB, for those that are unfamiliar, it's kind of like a job listing site. Yeah, right? so it's a, it's a job marketplace. And uh, we've recently uh, merged with another company in KL. So we actually build products that are for all of Southeast Asia. And um, we just released an app in Hong Kong that I'm, I've been working on for a very, very long time. Um, so yeah, I, I basically build apps for the for the company, the organization. Cool. Um, one of the things that we've talked about a lot is um, it's quite a recent phenomenon, but the, the world's talking about it is how much time we spend on our smartphones. So in essence, the app you've just built and previously you've been kind of trying to get people to stay in the app, right? A lot of it is stickiness and things like that. On a macro scale, how do you, what are your general feelings about the current like addiction to well, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth and say addiction, but people's current usage of smartphones. Addiction is a good word. <laughs> um, I've noticed that too. Like when I'm walking down the streets, I'm always on my phone, which is kind of weird because even now when I sit in front of a TV, we still just watch TV, and now it's all about being on the phone and yeah. watching TV. So, yeah. but in terms of keeping people on the app. It's a weird time, I would say, because of what Facebook has been doing, which is because of what Google has been doing, right? So the way we measure engagement on the app is there are a couple of different metrics. One of the metrics is daily active users. So those who come back to your app on a daily basis. 
The other one is monthly active users, those who actually come back month over month. And those are the ones that kind of measure the success of, a, of an application as well. The way bigger companies do it, and this was before Facebook kind of went down this dark path, um, we actually call this dark UX. So they have certain type of interactions inside an app mm. that kind of force you to go through that flow, or even though you don't want to, and or they, they nudge you multiple times a day just so you can get back into the app, right? Yeah. One company that does it really in a really bad way is LinkedIn. So an example of that is, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but they have this notification pattern, which is a red dot with a number. That is to inform a user that you have something waiting for you inside the app. They wanted to get more people to see that who may not have a phone. So they've added that notification to their email logo as well. So now when you get an email, you see their regular icon and then you see a red dot and you tap that and it takes you back into the into the their system. Yeah. Right. Do you think there's a difference in terms of how you approach it versus other types of platforms and services cuz in reality I'm thinking to myself if I go to JobsDB I probably have a very specific goal whereas if I'm on Facebook or Instagram like there's no sort of finite point because I'm just there to consume content versus like looking for a job and or looking for someone to fill a job. Yeah, Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn it's all about social content that you so it's Getting access to a lot of content. JobsDB <laughs> is about, uh, it, it's more than a job support now. We're actually trying to help people get content, so really relevant content to help them make a better decision when looking for a job or their next step, right? right. And the difference is, and I, I kept reading a lot about this, how do people, how do product managers and designers or product people measure their apps? If you want people to subscribe to your email, you can push something in their face and they have to subscribe to it. Hmm. Or you can do it in a way where it's more in context, you might not get that many people signed up, but those who actually opt in for this, really, you'll see really a bigger it. engagement. That means they really right. want it. Yeah. And then you have additional submetrics that say, what is the traffic that you get from this opt-in and how often do people opt out? So there's like multiple things that you can look at to kind of say, this is the value of this feature and I'm providing value because of how my customer uses it. So again, it goes back to how the company wants to think about their Right, metrics. so that was going to be my next point. Do you find that you have a battle with, do, do people want to do it the other way? They want to get m- the most users? Yes, right. yes. Um, we, we used to think that way. We used to think, okay, how do we get most people here? How do we get the most eyeballs? How do we get this? But this is when the designer in me kind of steps in and say, okay, let's do this, but what is the value we want to give to our customer? Mm. How do you measure that? Mm-hmm. How do you become more user-centric, right? A lot of companies, of course, is they go user centric, but halfway through they go business way, the business direction and try to make as much money. Mm-hmm. So it's a fine balance. You can never always be user centric and you can never always be business centric, right? right? Um, right. You have to be somewhere in between. There's and you that overlap, right? Yeah, the there's, a, there's a bit of an overlap. You got to make trade offs. That's why people get really mad when Facebook hasn't implemented something because there are additional things happening in the background that we don't know about, mm-hmm. which is stopping them from doing that. Maybe like a year later, you suddenly see it, yeah. right? Um, so that's kind of the, the war that you've, we face every day. Yeah. So like what, which companies or which services are, do you think are doing it right, right now? And which ones have got mm. more of that, um, what did you say? Dark UX. Dark UX. Yeah, yeah. So which ones are doing it right? Slack's really good at not annoying you uh, with notifications, but really nudging you to say, for example, there are a hundred channels you subscribe to. Mm. Every month they say, you've been subscribed to these four or five channels, but you've not interacted with this channel for about 
two weeks. Mm-hmm. Do you still want to subscribe to this? Mm-hmm. So they kind of nudge you that way. Another one is Airbnb. So there are go-to design gods for everything. We just always look at their the work that they do, yeah. the theory behind what they do, and uh, try to emulate their stuff, their thinking in our apps as well. Who else? It's Yeah, I mean, the, the list is really small. Right. Instagram is all about making money. Yeah, but generally when you see new design implementations, can you break that down methodically into why they've done it? It's hard. It's You're hard. not seeing a lot of the metrics in the background. Ah, uh, okay. Why is, I think we were talking about this the other day, Ed, why does my notification screen on Instagram show me more people, uh, suggested followers, mm. than people actually interacting with my feed? Whereas I think yours was people who liked your feed, right? Right, right. Why are they pushing suggested followers to me so so um, like hard? From From what I've heard on that, it's that one of their knowns is that the more people you follow, the more you will use the app. So the most important, one of the most important things is to get you to follow more people. And if you'll notice over five, six years, they have moved the suggestions or your contacts to various places because it's a constant, ba- not battle, but it's a constant back and forth to work out where is the best place to make you follow more people. That is it. That, that, that's essentially it. So that's why you saw that. Basically, we're talking we're talking about the notifications page on Instagram. Varun had some sort of beta appear. As if you still, you still got, still got it? So. Yeah. Where instead of seeing his likes, they were scrunched up into one notification and underneath it had all follow all these people who seem quite random, right? Mm. Oh, it's gone back now. Okay. Yeah. It's gone back now. Yeah, do you think that people now, how they interact with design, since in general... You know, even looking back at your experience before the iPhone, maybe you weren't so interested in design. I think now design is generally a lot more accessible. We see it everywhere, whether it's, you know, these digital native brands that are always uh, designed first, right? You know, your Warby Parkers, your Away suitcase, et cetera. Do you think that there's going to be a new normal where we're going to push against how these services how these apps are offering us design because we know better so an example is like new igtv i always i don't know if you guys see it but i get that multicolored bar at the top i have no interest and I, it bothers me because i can't exit let's see i'll see what i have it right now i can show you guys yeah yeah i know the you, bar. you know what i'm talking it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's deliberately there to grab my attention i yeah. know why they want me to go there mm-hmm. but i'm almost like hey i'm rebelling i want to think i'm smarter than you <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah, yeah. So it's stuff like that I'm curious because we're we're still going through the motions of being one of how do I put this? I don't I'm this is me just sort of spitballing, but arguably everyone here at this table is part of a more mature and experienced digital generation. Yeah. Meaning like maybe that 17-year-old that has grown up digitally doesn't necessarily think about the things that we do, but we've seen this this whole path, right? So I think I've been I think about it now and I'm wondering, hey, you know what? At some point in time, like the tricks would, the tricks will work for someone that's inexperienced. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if this is going to, at some point in time, you know, no longer be relevant or applicable. One of the things that will change, will change a lot is uh, the new tools coming in iOS and in Android. You know about these tools coming, right, Eugene, the, the, that are going to show you the health of your, yep. yeah, how, how much you've used each app, this kind of thing. I think that will be a real, um, I'm thinking it will be a turning point where you're shown quite clearly how much time you're spending, A, on your phone, and B, in, in which individual app. 
And I can, and oh, mm. actually, another key thing is how many times those apps notify, notify you a day, mm. Mm. which at this moment, I mean, you kind of have a rough idea in your head, but I think once it's laid out there, you're going to really decide A, whether you want as many notifications, and B, what you're doing with your life, basically. <laughs> you know, you're going to be, you're going to reach a stage where you're like, wow, I've spent, there's, there's, there's 12 hours I've been awake and it looks like I've been on this app for four, four of, you know, of those 12 hours. Yeah. Um, so I think that could change things. I'm hoping there's some kind of pushback. As it currently stands, I am blown away by how over a 10-year spell we have integrated our lives into the smartphone world yeah it hasn't changed we've changed we've we've um adapted to it and i think there's this article i read in the guardian which everyone should check out called technology is driving us to distraction where towards the end of the article the writer says just imagine that in 2008 we were we had to go and we get someone gave us a rectangle and said here is your rectangle. You will. Pay, you have to give about six hours attention to, to the rectangle every day. For all your friends and family are going to be doing the same thing, so don't worry about it, um, okay? But you're going to give all your attention to the rectangle and you'll get re- incrementally rewarded for it. You just you have to make sure you look at it last thing at night and first thing in the morning. Yeah. And if you put that as a pitch to someone in 2008, it could only be a Philip K. Dick book small you know about a dystopian horrific future but we all took it in instantly and i mean i I talked about this at work a couple of weeks ago i don't see i mean other than these tools coming in the operating systems i see no signs of slowdown i see a lot of new maybe they're dark ux ways of reaching out to people Mm -hmm. and and people are for want of a better word, falling for it. And so it's it will be tough. People are assimilating to this notification life. Almost, to, I would, sorry, just to finish, but the you can be in conversation with someone. Uh, okay, just take a meeting of three, four years ago, a meeting, even mm. when we had smartphones three, four years ago, a meeting involved everyone looking at each other, a meeting, someone talking, and everyone else listening. And I mean, a 2018 business meeting involves 90% of people looking at their phones yeah. at the same time. Like there's something maybe more important happening on the rectangle mm-hmm. and you've kind of got 50% attention to the person speaking. And we've all allowed it. I haven't seen anyone called on that behavior. So again... They I, want to I, leave that door open for themselves. Yeah, when they need to, yeah, exactly. When they want to check it. <laughs> so I think um, we we are pushing and we I don't see any slowdown in how much attention we give to the smartphone. Yeah. When I start looking at it more and more now, and a lot of the time I, I feel is spent primarily communicating and messaging, yeah. whereas I've yeah. spent less and less time on actual provision of content. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'd be curious, you know, how long have you been on Instagram for? Five years. Five years, right? Yeah. So, let's say in general, that's the baseline. I'm curious what your time spent on Instagram looks like over the course of the, over the course of those five years. And if it's gone through, you know, at the very beginning, maybe you're just kind of getting used to it. Then you reach peak addiction mm-hmm. and then soon you're kind of like weaning off it. Not yeah. to say you spend less time on your phone, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm curious as we get older, if we actually remove ourselves from uh, the social media a bit more. I think so. And I yeah. think it's a good point about the messaging because I find that a group messaging, especially it dominates what I do with my phone, mm-hmm. whether it's organizing things or sharing jokes. And I feel like it's a, it's like a reflection of life in that we were presented with an opportunity to share with everyone you ever met, right? And when, when that was the only option, 
I feel like we were okay to do it. And then the next step was Facebook and um, the other platforms saying, hey, look, we've customized it so you can share with a group of people. But for most people, that was too hard. Ultimately, what you want to do is share with your friends. And then you're more likely to share more honestly and openly and your sense of humor with your friends. And so what we've reached is now a stage where you're in a group of group messages and you would share things that eight or nine years ago you would have shared on Facebook. Mm. Right. And I feel people are way more comfortable now in these group messages, like just to share one football thing with their friends who are talking about football. And this new movie's coming out with another group of friends. And I think that is the, I think that's a reflection of life. That's what you would have done. We would have done without the smartphone. We would have shared those things without those sets of friends. And I think that is like Facebook were very smart to spot that and purchase WhatsApp and build out Mm. Messenger a long time ago because we kind of, I feel we went through a slight withdrawal just to small groups of friends. And I'm okay with that. I know it's a very big addiction as well, just having the messaging on the phone, just messaging all the time. Mm -hmm. I somehow, I don't know how you guys feel, I'm a lot more okay with using my phone to message than I am. I, I feel like consuming social media is more of a time suck. And more detrimental to your psychological well-being etc yeah. etc et like yeah. i i never it's really come away almost yeah, waiting yeah. For that. i don't really come away looking at social media feeling as though i've gotten a lot of value right maybe it manifests itself in face-to-face interaction because you immediately have a, an anchor oh i saw you were in so-and-so and then yeah. that just sort of starts a conversation rather than resetting it mm-hmm. no that yeah i mean go back to messaging when was the last time you got on a call with someone and had a really good call. No, I was speaking to right. someone about this the other day, like um, somebody who wasn't at their desk and their phone was just ringing constantly. And me and another person were just laughing because we were kind of like, why would you try so persistently to talk to another human being? Like the phone rang like, oops, the phone rang like three times, you know, for long periods. And I was just like, I don't know what would make me call someone three yeah. times, you yes. know, Even without now, sending them a message. When I get a call, um, yeah. because we have offices around like Asia, and I would get a call from a colleague in KL yeah. instead of getting a message through Slack. And I looked at it, I was thinking, well, you could have just Slacked me. I can see you. Yeah. We're online. Why yeah. are you not just Slacking me? Yeah. It's just kind of weird because I'm going to do work and talk to you at the same time. So. Yeah, I'm I'm totally okay with a, with a messaging level in a group, Slack, WhatsApp, any various way. I, I, I think it speaks to me as a person as a certain level of open, how can I say it, um, social. The level of social that I'm at is that I can I can message to any time, but speaking, I'm going to need to be in a certain place. <laughs> I don't know if that's weird, but that's just how I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. The, the one that, thing that I would like to see going forward is, uh, I've made this comment before, I, I don't think there's a replacement for us speaking face-to-face beyond text. Right, but I also feel that the kind of the UX UI of that could change, and the iPhone has it with like visual voicemail, right? Like, how do you integrate that into WhatsApp and whatnot? And like, I I sometimes prefer to communicate through voice because I feel I can articulate a lot quicker, and right. the nuance is sort of removed from it. Yeah, and it was interesting. I was um I use Telegram a lot, mm-hmm. and they have a new feature where you can actually replay message like voice messages at two x speed. I thought that was actually pretty intelligent. Okay. So oh, the wow. evolution of that I think is like, can you use AI and just transcribe it, right. you know, on the fly? Yeah. This goes back to uh, I think we were talking about this: the difference between the way to do US and UI in Asia versus the West, mm-hmm. so East and West, right? Yeah. Uh, WeChat, do you guys 
chat, like um, have those recordings and, right. and you send to your friends, which yes. I see a lot of my friends in, in Macau do. Yeah. They don't send text messages, they mm-hmm. send voice recordings. Yeah. But I don't see anyone in the in the West do that. Over, yeah, um, absolutely. I no. think it might come down, what language are they speaking? In Chinese. Chinese. Chinese, yeah. yeah I Chinese. think it's the complexity of writing in Chinese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, uh, I never thought about that. That's, that's yeah. real good I just, I just when I'm on the MTR and the subway watching people like do it, I'm like, man, this looks super tedious to do like 50 strokes to send off one character. Yeah, Maybe yeah. not 50 strokes. There's one small thing. I don't know if this is UI or UX. There's one interesting thing about the voice messaging on WeChat mm. is that you can't stop it and rewind it. On you, you can on WhatsApp, you can on Telegram. Obviously, there's a new feature on Telegram that sounds even better. But actually on WeChat, which is the platform I predominantly see voice messaging used on, is that you need to press play and then let it run the whole thing. And then you can start, you have to just, mm-hmm. it's, where once you let it run, it will start again. And that speaks to, I don't know if we're going to get into specifics on apps, but I feel like competition drives a lot of UI and UX. And when you don't have any competition, like Tencent, currently don't. We talked about this as well. The app, although it has some of the latest features, the implementation of them is quite stale. And whether that's the actual design of the app or the way that, as I just said, the voice messaging, which is a primary part of the app, is implemented, it's I just find that's very interesting. I don't know if you, what your thoughts on that, like in terms of, comp- like you just said earlier, Airbnb are like a real um, driver for you. Yeah. So partly competition, mm. partly because of user needs in China. I think I was reading about it again the other day, like the keyboard for Chinese-based apps, mm. the send button is at the bottom. Right. Whereas Western apps, are at the, it's at the top bar, yeah. right? Because when you type in English, you have to hit space, next a word, next word. In, in Chinese, there is no space. Mm-hmm. So it's easier just to hit send and send it. Right. So there's a couple of nuances there for like the Asian market and the, and the Western market. Right. And I think that's maybe why the, the send, uh, sending of the voice memo is different. Yeah. I think the way they use it. Yeah. Um, I would assume they would, back this up by data because their design team is crazy. More than 170 designers. I mean, you, I mean, you can see why, right? I mean, their app is huge. It's mm-hmm. a huge app. There's so many things going on in there. Mm-hmm. It is a bit of competition from like, the Chinese apps, but it is just how the, the landscape of Chinese apps look, where they want access to everything. They want people to stay on the app as much as possible, which is why they have a big menu full of icons, so you can, dis- they call it discovery, basically. You can tap on that and kind of go to different areas. Right. So uh, it's more of like the the, the landscape of the, the, the Asian market, the Chinese market at least. Yeah. Cool. Very yeah, different I've always been West. curious, because when I use WeChat, I want to do a line break, but I can't. Right, yeah. right, right. It always just goes to send. Yeah, it goes to send, exactly. Yeah. I also want to be able to, something that's really, that's just come into line actually, it's just to re- hold and reply to messages. You know, like you can in WhatsApp, just reply to a specific message in a group mm. chat. WeChat doesn't have that. It's, it's interesting because they seem so like interested, like very basic things to us. But you're right, the use of language is so different that it could be something that's never crossed their mind for yeah. their primary market. Through this design that's been exposed to everyone, right? People's first experiences of design are now looking at a smartphone screen. Mm-hmm. Would you say that this has affected photography as we know it? Are we seeing a certain type of photography that fits that fits well with a smartphone screen, that fits well with an aesthetic that is very smartphone-centric. So has design, has the... the um... Right, so, so I mean, the question I'm asking is not so much about today, but maybe when you, when, maybe two, three years ago, when, when dis, the people that we saw as big photographers on mm-hmm. social media were actually, a lot of them were designers, and so there was a very... 
it was a very symmetrical, clean aesthetic. Yep. Um, to, and that kind of brought a lot of those type of people into the photography field. I think what I'm asking is, do you, they left their mark, basically. I'm not even asking. I'm just saying, do you, don't you think? They, yes. they, these designers yes. left their mark on the current form of photography as we know it. And that that is the kind of the clean black and white, very, very minimal color mm, looks mm. to a design. And even the very idea that your edits have to have a certain, every single edit has to look the same, like in a certain aesthetic. Do you think a lot of that came from the design that you saw in apps and people's exposure to those kind of things? There might be two aspects of this. So that's mm-hmm. aesthetic, definitely mm-hmm. from exposure to things apps like Instagram. Mm-hmm. So you can see how people have gone from like a minimal design mm. to symmetry, which I still kind of stick yep. to, mm. to fade crushed blacks. Yep. And then to now like uh, really contrasty type colors. And yep. that maybe through an exposure of Instagram, yep. um, because Flickr has been around for su- such a long time, yep. Yep. but we yep. never saw that pattern happen there, right? But I would say the thing is with Flickr, a lot of people, I'm, I mean, I haven't got the exact numbers, but I would say Flickr to current Instagram Flickr at its sale to Yahoo I think had mm. 25 million users like we're now at a billion like we're, we're like a fifth of the planet is out there taking photos and looking at them every day I think the influence that, that the app can have now is far greater and again just to that make that point that Flickr was desktop Yes, exactly. You could step away from a computer and not see a photo. And now, I mean, not just Instagram, but I still need to labor the point that we are at a time where we look at hundreds, thousands more photos than we did five, six years ago. So So the influence of everything you're seeing on your screen in the app and outside the app probably influenced photography, right? So it's the accessibility to this. It's how easy it is for people to take photos, apply filters, and upload it. And even now, with Lightroom on mobile, I mean, I remember our time, so Lightroom on desktop was still very complicated at one time. Mm-hmm. Only pros use it. And now you see Lightroom almost being used by a lot of people, yeah. not just the pros. People are just posting, what are they called, like guides and, and uh, tutorials, demos, tutorials mm-hmm. about using Lightroom mobile or just Lightroom in general. It's so much more, it's easier to understand. So mm-hmm. that's where UX and UI kind of have helped there. It's just, it's super accessible. Anyone can use it, right? Yeah. And that may have led to exposure to these really well-designed apps, have led to more people using it and then a certain type of content you're seeing on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. And then the other side of that is like Instagram going vertical with the video, right? Yes, yes. Because of the explosion of mobiles, because of how many people have access to mobile. Mm-hmm. In Indonesia, they're... Um, and this is from some of the research articles I used to read, their version of internet is a smartphone and Facebook. Right. So it wasn't about browser or anything, it was just, or, or a, a laptop. Their mm-hmm. access to the internet was through their phone yeah. and most likely Facebook. Mm-hmm. So Instagram going to like a vertical video, which is so weird, mm. but soon that's going to be the norm. Up until this point, yep. you've discussed a lot about how data validates or and or influences design decisions, correct, right? Correct. And on the top of on the topic of photography, if Instagram never had that sort of metric driven sort of hey, if you like this photo, double tap it right, and we would never know what photos were actually popular. Mm. Do you think that photography as we know it would be a lot more? I don't know if interesting is the word, but more varied and diverse versus now people can easily define a style based on hey, you know what? I've noticed that. Uh, taking a photo that's centered 
of a person in a canoe in a lake is going to be a guaranteed success mm-hmm. or at least, you know, put me in that sort of uh, that bucket. Yeah, that that's that's an interesting one to look at it that way. For me, I think it goes back to how accessible to this information is. it is on Instagram. You can follow these certain type of photographers that, that shoot only a certain way and see how much engagement they get and then do the same thing and then blow up on Instagram. One thing I've seen also just from all the photographers, the, all the young up-and-coming photographers, they're leaving their full-time jobs to do this full-time because, you know, they they see this now. They can they see that they can make money, a certain type of become famous or travel the world or, or make money from brands by certain uh, by shooting a certain type of style and and putting it online, which to me is is kind of scary because I, I don't know who said it. They said. Um, Mm. Oh, KOL has gone mainstream. Yeah, and for people unfamiliar with KOL, is key opinion leader. Key opinion, yeah. Yeah, it's more of like an Asian term for an influencer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a scary trend, I think. And um, yeah, I mean, being able to see these type of feedback from people when you like something, getting a thousand likes and then blowing up. I think one of the questions that people always ask is, "Oh, how do you get ten thousand followers? How do you do that? How do right, you right, right, right? You know, I have um I have a devil's advocate um thing for you on this. Okay, so going make to your specific example about a person in a canoe with a hat on, right? With Banff in the background, right? Let's just say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just as an aside, somewhere I've never been, but I feel like I know it because of your yeah. example. Yeah, I've seen it a, mil- a million times. But would you say that pre-social media, you may have only seen that photo on the cover of Condé Nast Traveler, Right. Mm-hmm. Like, where would you have seen mm-hmm. that photo before 2010? Yeah, probably in a place where someone had gone to those lengths to shoot it right. and done it in a way just because, hey, this is my my job and my role versus right. now Instagram is like, I mean, I mean, a lot of Instagram persons are seeking out these experiences or just a certain generation in general. Yeah. So, I mean, I know there is a breaking point for it, but one person did it. Let's say 20, 30 people copy it. That is more a sense of the low barriers to entry to recreate that. And is that a massive problem for us? Is, is, can you just turn your head? Will, will, will um, free market economics decide when we've seen enough of mm-hmm. that? And is, so is that still okay? Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't get too upset about things I see on Instagram. Right. But I just like, it was, it was just curious. I was just curious to see if it was pushing things a certain way because of outward validation. I've got another um, theory on the outward validation, but just the final thing on that, the only thing I see becoming a problem is when somebody who probably had a really creative, smart point of view chooses not to go in that direction and instead goes to take the canoe photo because he knows it gets likes, Mm -hmm. right? So you might lose someone's creativity as a result of that. But I will say that there are tons of people out there I feel like I've, I've been thinking this for now, for a while now. This is the first time I'm going to verbalize it. There are a lot of people that are only holding a camp camera because they saw someone else do things. Not everyone is at peak creativity. And so you will always have a ton of copycats. And copycats is a harsh word because it always has a negative connotation, connotation. But generally, you're seeing things that, for the most part, I don't think you would see those people do at all. Yeah, They wouldn't be doing this. And there will always be people, hopefully, that are creatively driving things in a, in, in a positive direction, in a new direction. And, and the only difference is that now you'll have tens, 
hundreds of thousands of people follow those creative directions and it will look like everyone's doing the same thing, mm. but essentially one person led them that way, hopefully. It's interesting because I'm now kind of going back on what I just said and like the whole notion of copycats is interesting because when we go to school and we learn, we're basically copying anyways. Like yeah. this is how you solve this equation. Yeah. So in reality, I think that even if copying somebody is your first touch point into photography, it's too early to say whether or not once you've established a foundation towards how to use a camera, et cetera, that you don't actually push off into your own direction. Yeah. So it's no different. Like you need to know the foundation of it. Yeah. And if yeah. someone is theoretically doing well, then yeah. they can be your learning foundation. Yes. So I guess, does it make copying okay? I guess maybe now it's even contextual. Yeah. Like if I've only picked up a camera in the last six months, like, Everyone likes to judge what happens at any given moment in time rather than zooming out and seeing what happened between month zero, month three, six, yeah. nine, twelve. And yeah. I think that's a much more interesting and fascinating thing to look at. It's just that mm. it's very challenging. So look at mm. it. To like because yeah. you need to yeah. you need to like zoom out and you need to totally. check back in, et cetera. Totally. And then to the to the amount of the amount that we're consuming every day, zooming out becomes harder and mm. harder. It's incredible how you know, you can just look back at something you did a year ago and realize you haven't looked at that thing. Only then do you realize there has been progress and stuff like that. Mm. To your point about outward validation, I was going to say that this is, you can chime in on this on whether it's UX based, but one of the biggest things of the last seven, eight years is the, the, the validation that Facebook has provided. As a result, it has changed every other um, social media platform to go down the same route and provide validation for their users. Um, I would say Twitter. Except Visco. Oh, yes, yes. When it comes to Visco and how things are different, because I was going to say Twitter changed their fave. Was it starring, star, to, starring, starring tweets to just to remember them, turn them into turn that into a heart? Obviously, Instagram came along. Apple are, are guilty as well now, because you see on iMessage, you can do, add a certain amount of emojis to someone's joke or whatever. Mm. You can add a heart or a, a thumbs up. Pretty much we are in the, the like economy and or the, the like era. And yeah, I, I can totally, I, I've explained this to people before, I can totally see some an average piece of content elevated by the number of likes it gets. It, um, so people just see it and think it's spectacular. And again, and, uh, something really creatively driven, an original idea, not do so well. And therefore, in a lot of people's minds, it's not as good. We're just in the era where we're judging things by the number, the, the amount of engagement that thing has without, again, zooming out and looking at the reach or anything like that, other than Visco. And I mean, do you look at, do you look at Visco often? Not that often. When I do look at it, if I take the time <laughs> to, to look at it, it is incredibly different. And you can really see people not driven by validation. I would love to know, and I think I asked um, Joel Flory this at the time, I would love some sort of metrics to know how much people, how much time people spend looking at Visco with no validation of uh, how their work's going. Mm. Um, that, that would solve so much for me because right now I think so much is only happening because of the validation. That's my theory. With Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, if this went away, if the validation part just disappeared, I feel like one, everyone would be a lot calmer, <laughs> but two, I, maybe people wouldn't use this stuff so much. Mm. Um, it's interesting. You guys are looking at it from a, from a user point of view. Like yeah. This is validation and social media and content. If I put on my, my product hat, I'm looking at it from a, this is the only way for 
as a product company or as a designer or someone on this team to get um, intent from the user. Yeah. So so I can push you more relevant content or yeah. more uh, recommended stuff or right. more of this and more of that. And that's where things like like and bookmarking and saving, uh, bookmarking saving, same yeah, thing. Yeah. You know, all those things come into play there because that's my product thinking going mm-hmm. in saying, I need to get some sort of intent from you. What do you like? What do you not like? Yeah. How much time do you spend on something so I can push you even more stuff? Right. Whereas from a user is, I'm validating something and I can see, I can share this with other people and sh- uh, see that I have 2,000 likes, something like that. Yeah. Um, it, for, for me, that you've told me that before and it makes me, I think I've spoken to Eugene about this before, it makes me sometimes nervous about liking or sharing a certain thing and mm-hmm. knowing that there's physical data bank somewhere holding onto that piece of information and deciding you like that. It's weird. I don't think it affects everyone, but definitely I have a feeling where I just think, okay, I can like this without actually making any sort of interaction on this piece of content. And that purely comes from, I don't want company X to know everything about me. You know, how do you feel about that? It's partially based on the fact that I don't want to give them information to build an identity or a, a profile of me. But then also in some ways it, it's weird because we, by virtue of liking something, what is the actual value we get for ourselves, mm. right? And I think that you get to a point too where you know whether I look at it and I like it and I don't like it, there's it makes absolutely no difference. I don't necessarily ascribe any value to it. Mm. So it's the point now where I'll look at something and I might look at it, scroll at it, scroll back up. Oh, that's interesting, but never like it. Right. So what does that mean? Or maybe that inherently is still building a profile for me because yeah. I spent, you know, a little bit longer than usual. Yeah. From, so, from my understanding, it, it, it's mm-hmm. even the time you spent looking at it. Counts. Yeah. So now it's the point where even double tapping is like unnecessary. It's an action that I don't get any value from. So yeah. I almost don't even do it as much anymore. Yeah. The other side of that is like, uh, and this is where we talk about this at work all the time as well. How do, if if you want to make products feel more personal, we need some sort of feedback from you. But if a user is not willing to give you the feedback, and then we just send them content that is not really relevant, then they complain about that, right? So, what is that trade-off? How do you make that trade-off? Mm. And how do you uh, the data side of thing like hosting that data, where we keep it and how we use it is also another story that yeah. is very important these days to talk about yeah. and how we use it especially, which I think every company has their own way of, of dealing with it and, right. and yeah. you know moving forward on that. Changing topic slightly, I just want to talk more about your upbringing and how you see yourself. I think I'm going to chime in with Eugenia's as well about that. So you were born in India Mm. and then moved to Macau. Your parents are Indian. Yes. You spent your childhood in Macau, then to the US and then back to Macau. How would you classify yourself? (laughs) Looking at me, give me that look. (laughs) (laughs) How would I classify? I have a... I used to introduce myself can, can as... I, can I, sorry, go on. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, for anyone listening, there's a reason I've asked this question and where I'm getting to is um, based on the World Cup win for France. A lot of commentators, comedians saying that uh, Africa won the World Cup, even though uh, many of those French players, only one of them was born outside of France. Um, they're all born in France to um, many of them to immigrant parents from African countries. This has blown up to a thing, people saying that, first-generation French people. Some some of them may not want to celebrate their heritage. Some of them do want to celebrate their heritage. Again, coming from the UK, I have a different point of view again. And I just wanted to ask Varun, what 
how he stands on this. I get confused sometimes where I'm from. Um, <laughs> I used to introduce myself as a Chindian. Um, <laughs> so I was born in India, right? I have an Indian passport. My parents are Indian, but I never, I left when I was seven. Right. And um, I grew up in Macau, which I, I kind of associate myself with Macau more. So when yeah. I think about some of my favorite musicians or, or you know, artists, right? Apart from the Western artists, yeah. I'm thinking of Jay Chow. Yeah. So how many Indians are going to say, oh, Jay Chow versus uh, Ravi Shankar or yeah. like some of those classic, you know, mm-hmm. or even the latest um, Indian artists, which I have no idea about. Right. Not because I'm not interested, but... When you're out of that zone, you're out of that context, yeah. you're out of the country, and you're not in the same uh, area or, you know, where you're always getting influenced by Indian um, music or movies or just in general content, yeah. I can't relate to it anymore. Right. And so I tell people, oh, I was born in India, but I'm actually from Macau. Yes. I grew up there, and, and my, 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 the way I think about family and culture and stuff is... is a mixture of like Chinese and Indian. Right. Uh, there's a lot of similarities there for sure. Right, right. But it's it's a mixture of both. Um, okay. And now living in the U.S. and I have I have this special connection to the U.S. as well because I spent the better part of like um, so about six years, not better part, six years there. Yeah. And that's when, you know, you go through these phases of getting into an adult, and I learned a lot from there. So I learned a lot from my um, Western friends, American friends. Yeah. And the American influence, um, the, the American culture, and yes. Things like Thanksgiving and mm-hmm. bonding over Thanksgiving, you know, turkey on, in November with the family. So yeah. that is still part of who I am as well. Right. Uh, especially now with my nieces being American and my brother, you know, who's lived in, who's lived there for a long time. So it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint saying, oh, I'm from Macau, but I'm actually from the U.S. and right. I'm actually Indian. It's it's a tough. It's, it's you can't it, sum it up in I, a. I, in I a can't sentence. sum it up because right. I'm just influenced by so many different things. Mm-hmm. I kind of pick the best out of each one and just go with that. Yeah, that works, that works. I feel like the whole notion of defining yourself by where you're from is growing increasingly antiquated. Is that the right word? It's like, it just feels as though it's no longer relevant as as it once was because people move around so much. Yeah. But for better or worse, our definition of culture and identity is so fluid, Mm -hmm. right? And like, you know, you're, you're, if you ever were to move back to, to London, you yeah. would probably bring with you some traits that you picked up while you were in Hong Kong. Absolutely. I would hope so. I've been having this conversation as of late and I think that the future of how we interact, who we, who we decide to hang out with is actually less defined by maybe socioeconomic background and more so by just cultural overlap that is in many ways established through traveling. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like the who you hang out with, like I find myself gravitating more towards people or just not necessarily gravitating. I think there's a strong level of identification with people that have traveled a bit and have enjoyed traveling. Mm-hmm. And I'm always curious, like, and this is just, you know, unsubstantiated sort of a thought that I have is like, if you look at Brexit and just nationalism in general, how much of nationalism is tied to a lack of a passport? lack of travel yeah. and what would it look like you know how if you were to kind of break it down absolutely um, statistically what would that look like I would, absolutely i think one of the key things that kept coming up after brexit is how that i mean it didn't keep coming up but I, I saw it a few times with people saying that the people that fear europeans everybody should be mandatorily 
have to visit Europe, you know, for a certain period. A certain, almost like we used to have national service in the until the 1960s, I think, in the UK. And then you get a lot of people saying the country went downhill when national service stopped. If it was in reinstituted, I would love it to be that everybody has to go to a different country mm. to do their national service. Um, obviously, this would never happen, but there has to be something that shows everybody the benefits of of mixed cultures, of mixing with another culture. You know, if you come away from it and decide you don't like it, fair enough, but at least you did it. I don't know. This just sounds super hippie, but I just can't see any negatives to mixing cultures in that way. I personally, but still, even though you just said it, it's becoming antiquated, I would say that it's still, to this day, one of the second or third questions that you're asked. It's an easy a sort of like conversation way to, to drive identity. Yeah, it's, it's, I would say for me personally in, I would say it's changed over time as London has become more diverse. I feel like maybe when I was in school, there were people that would say, you know, I think we jokes about this. Where are you from? You say London or UK and someone says, well, you know, where are you really, really from? Yeah, where, where are you really from? I feel like as an adult, that where are you really from kind of went away in London. Mm. And the funny thing is that I found moving to the other side of the world is that Everybody, 99% of cases take, well, just take London as your first answer. Mm. They just want, it's almost just like a talking point. I don't find anyone exploring back further. So I feel like it could be changing. And then maybe another 20 years down the line, it's not even a question. They just look at your face and be like, whatever, let's just talk about. I mean, things are growing increasingly borderless as well. Yeah. Or the goal is anyways. So my girlfriend's Chinese, right. British, born and raised in the UK, but... Uh, her family's from Hong Kong, right? So if we were to get married and have kids, those kids are going to get confused. Um, even more confused to think, oh, so am I Chinese or am I Indian or am I, depending on where we have the kid, I'm yeah. from that country. I always think back to the, the Russell Peters joke. So like, oh, you, everyone's going to be beige at some point. And yeah. it's not going to matter. Like, it's just, right. you know, where are you from? Oh, I'm from this country because I've lived here for this many years and this is who I am now. Yeah, yeah. I, Got um, it. it was really good to hear your point about the culture that you took on board from Macau because, yeah, I feel like you're from the place that you identify with the most. The and most, yeah. I mean, some people put a strict kind of time frame on it, you know. You could you could technically say you were from the US, right? Like that you have took in Thanksgiving, you took in, yeah. you love Portland, right? Yeah. I do. I see. Yeah, I do. <laughs> you, you, I've lot. seen your eyes. When I talk about Portland, you love Portland. Yeah. You could say you're from Portland. It's nobody else's to question but yours. It's where you feel like you're from. Yeah, people want to strictly define it. Hopefully, as you said, it's going away. I think there's going to be a lot of things that we continue to seek in terms of identity, but I just think that where we're from is probably going to be pushed to the wayside a little bit. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Cool. I think on that note, we can call that an interview. Cool. Thanks for yeah. coming in, Varun. Thank you for having Thanks me. For Thanks time, for uh, my special guest, Eugene Can. Thanks. Hey, stay tuned for the next one. Peace. Tune in, and if you have any comments or feedback, please message me on Instagram. And if you like this podcast, we ask you to do one thing and one thing only. Please share it with a friend or wherever you can. Let's get into it.